Good morning and welcome back. This is Brad Furlan, your host on Vermont Viewpoint here at WDEV in Waterbury, Vermont. Happy Tuesday to you. I hope you had a good day yesterday if you had the day off and got to relax a little and, um, you know, just take it easy, which is a good thing once in a while. Uh, our, my next guests are, uh, here to talk about a legislative bill, S, Senate Bill S18, a bill that would ban the sale of flavored tobacco products in Vermont. It's a 20 page bill. I don't know if that means that it's, uh, how, how serious that is, but it sounds pretty serious. Uh, I want to welcome to the show William Greer and Tina Zuck. Welcome this morning. Good morning. Thanks for having us. Yep. Thank you for having us, Brad. Yeah. It's great to have you both. Uh, start, uh, William, can I start with you? Can you, can you tell us a little bit about, um, what organization you're working with on this and, and maybe a little bit about yourself as well? Yep. So for those out there, I'm Will Greer. Um, I work with Flavors Hook Kids Vermont. I'm the Southern Vermont field organizer. So I go all around our southern part of the state and just talk to people on the ground about what the bill entails, what it plans on doing, and then also just hearing what people have to say about the bill, about their experiences with smoking, with vaping. Um, we've spoken to, you know, kids in middle school and high school, and then we've also spoken to families uh, mothers and fathers that have kids in the school system that either, um, you know, smoke and vape themselves or are around it, you know, constantly. Um, so that's the work I do with Flavors of Kids Vermont is going around and talking to people, and it's the best part of the job. Sounds like it's very interesting to get the you're, – you're, you do a lot of research, really. You're doing focus group kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Yep. We're doing, like, field research and just going out there and really hearing the testimony that people have to say about the bill. And it's, you know, I've, I'm looking forward to sharing it with you guys here in a little bit. Yeah. Uh, and Tina, uh, I have listed American Heart Association. Is that your affiliation? That's who I'm with, yes. I've been with the Heart Association for about 20 years now. I'm the government relations director. And unfortunately, tobacco prevention is one of the issues I've been working on every single one of those years. It's interesting, isn't it? It it would seem that we would get to some point where there was um, cross-the-board awareness of it, but it's an ongoing thing you're telling us. Is that right? Yeah, we made great headway ages ago. Um, smoking rates by both adults and youth were high, double digits, you know, 20, 30 percent, um, and got them really low through great prevention work. We have a fantastic tobacco control program in the state of Vermont, great quit resources. That was all before e-cigarettes made the scene. And now we're seeing use rates, especially by kids, that are right back up to where they used to be. And, um, you know, these products still have nicotine. They're still dangerous. And what we've heard through testimony and like Will has heard just out and about across Vermont is kids, even middle schoolers, are becoming to nicotine. And it's kind of a whole new world now of you know, still tobacco, but new products. It seems like there's always a new one. Um, when you know, it's a big game of whack-a-mole, there have been some that have been eliminated and then others make the scene uh, so that the industry can make some profits. And unfortunately, the youngsters in Vermont are becoming the, the target so they can have lifelong customers. And Tina, can you help me with this? Because I don't even know the the legal age to buy these tobacco products sure. or vaping things. What what, is, what are the rules in Vermont? So it was changed in a number of states, including Vermont first, and then the federal government took action. So now you have to be 21 years old um, to purchase legally a tobacco product. The restriction is more on the, the who's selling it. You cannot sell it to anyone under 21. <clears throat> but that's it used to be 18. And 2019, I think, is when that law changed. Okay. Um, so theoretically, kids shouldn't be using, uh, tobacco products, but apparently they are because we see, we see it. Um, right. It- yeah. And what we've heard from where they get them from, you know, that that's big, then the big question, right? If it's 21, where are they getting them from? And so we heard in testimony and just talking to people at, from SAP counselors at schools and other places that, 
you know, and because our enforcement, <clears throat> excuse me, at stores is good. Um, but a couple of things that are, that are happening, we have heard that kids are getting them from their older siblings and even parents who buy them thinking it's a safer thing for kids and it's not. Um, that they get them from friends who may be working at convenience stores and that they get them online. And there's still some bad actors online who either intentionally or don't know of Vermont's law. There, we have a ban on selling tobacco on the Internet. And, um, you know, if you, unfortunately, if you try, the age restrictions really aren't that hard to get around. Um, it'll ask, are you legal age? All you have to do is say yes in many cases. And so our Department of Liquor and Lottery and the Attorney General's Office and Health Department have been working really well together to try to stop that. So especially kids don't get them online and have had a lot of success. They've reaped about, I think it's about a million dollars to date just in penalties that they've secured from the companies who had illegally sold to, to kids. Um, so that's good news, but, you know, work certainly, um, more work needs to be done. And, you know, I think hand in hand with that, and this is why Will and I are here today is, one of the things that will help prevent kids from getting hooked is to take away with the kind of the allure, what's making them try them. And it is the flavors. And, you know, the tobacco companies know this because what adult is going to go and purchase unicorn puke because that's the flavored vape that they want. That's totally marketed to kids, Sour Patch Kids, Bubblegum, all that. They're flavors that are really attractive and interesting to kids and kids have have tried them, thinking, oh, that sounds kind of cool. I might just try it once. But there's nicotine in these devices. And so many who tried it with friends as a social thing or just a, you know, I'll just see, can't get away from it anymore because the nicotine has, has gotten them hooked. And, you know, everyone, I think everyone has heard of Juul because that seemed to be the big vape product that came on the market that got a lot of kids interested in vaping and was bleak and cool and the pods look like USB drives. And um, they had the equivalent. They have 500 puffs. So that's the equivalent to a pack of cigarettes. Now there's so many devices on the market that have eight times the amount of nicotine. Um, one's called Click and um, uh, Puff Bars. And they're hip and they unfortunately have way more nicotine and uh, the addiction level is much greater because of it. And, uh, and really a pathway to cigarette smoking, I, I would guess. Uh, we want to go to the phone lines. Uh, we have about two minutes uh, before the break, but Mary from Randolph, uh, welcome to the show. Hi, good morning. Uh, good morning to your guests. Um, I have grandchildren in high school and middle school, and I know last year my middle schooler, she was not even wanting to use the restrooms because of all the vaping that was going on and the smell. And she's she's a sensitive kid anyway to certain smells, but this is really noxious and couldn't use the bathrooms. So I think, you know, the stores that are selling them probably are doing a pretty good job of, you know, kind of policing it and making sure that they're not selling to minors. But I don't know what's happening in the schools, why they can't stop it, um, you know, when you can't go in the restroom and use it because of vaping. It's very sad and shocking. Well, thank you for that call, Mary. Uh, it, it it does definitely seem like a problem. Uh, are you, William, are you seeing... The same thing Mary describes, a lot of it in the schools right now? Yep. I was just going to comment and say that I, you know, when we go around and talk to the students, they give us, you know, such great quotes and inspiration about kind of how the issue really is in the schools um, at the current moment. And I was just thinking about a student in Pomfret that was talking about how vapes are traded on the regular in their school bathrooms. And yep. then, if I'm not mistaken, this was in northern Vermont, so this is kind of out of my territory, but from what I've heard, there's some schools even considering putting in vaping devices to detect when students are vaping in the bathroom. So the problem's gotten so severe in the schools that you know, the way students are, you know, engaging with that behavior, um, that they're having to come to some, you know, uh, enforcement measures that, you know, maybe will or, you know, may not solve the problem. We'll get back to the, uh, to the, in the schools and, and that in a minute, but 
Amy from Williston has been patiently waiting. Uh, Amy, welcome to our show. Thank you very much. I hope you can hear me. We can hear you, yes. Great. Um, I just wanted to ask your callers, we talked a little bit about kids, and I'm wondering if they could talk a little bit about um, how much Vermont really pays to treat people who have been addicted to nicotine. Okay. Tina or William? I'm happy to take that, and thanks for the question, Amy. Um, yeah, that's a, that's an additional reason for, for passing this legislation. I think, you know, the most important reason to pass this is that is the kids, right? Kids should have the kids without being addicted to nicotine. But then right after that, we're spending $404 million in the state of Vermont every year treating tobacco-caused diseases, and $93 million of that are direct Medicaid expenditures. So the tobacco industry likes to say, oh, my gosh, we're going to lose all kinds of money from this bill. But if you do the math, right, if you look at the $93 million in Medicaid expenditures that we're spending, we get $76 million in tobacco revenue each year. We're losing money every year from tobacco because of the amount of money we're spending to treat this. And, you know, that $404 million figure doesn't even take into effect yet. This whole slew of kids that are addicted to vaping products that will be growing as adults addicted to nicotine. And as you said, Brad, some of them will turn to smoking um, instead of vaping as they go on. And all those and what that means is additional health care costs for Vermonters. So if you figure in that the, the number I just mentioned was Medicaid, which is state expenditures, if you figure in Medicare costs as well, the tax burden to every Vermont household is over $1,000, it's $1,072. So it makes really good fiscal sense for the state to pass this bill because we're not going to be able to catch up to those expenditures unless we start getting smoking and vaping rates down. Well, uh, the $404 million is, is, is staggering figure. Yeah. Uh, and so that's a mix of Medicaid, Medicare, and your regular health insurance from, you know, every Vermonter, the cost of treating tobacco. So, William, let's get back into the high schools and the, maybe even the middle schools because they're often connected. Uh, I don't know enough about vaping, but is is when you buy a vaping apparatus, is it have the – Whatever is in it, is it's all self-contained, or are you adding to, you know, a pipe or something? So it depends. There are some disposable vapes that just come, buy them as is, and then you just dispose them. And then others do have pods that you can attach, and you can put um, additional uh, amounts of the vape liquid into into the vape capsule itself. And our our. Are younger, we're really looking at the younger population getting attracted to these flavors. Are they, are they making the direct correlation to the nicotine or is, or, or not? No, and that's, you know, I think that's what we should distinguish with this generation of students is this isn't a generation necessarily addicted to smoking. They're addicted to flavors and the flavored products that are disguising the nicotine in them, and it makes it more appealing. And I think Tina was touching on that a minute ago. So, you know, I think that's really what the addiction is being driven by is the flavors. Um, And I don't think that it's fully made aware that nicotine is very prevalent and very heavy in these products. And along with that, I mean, a million years back, the – the old movies, uh, Jimmy Dean smoking cigarettes, there's the cool factor. Is, is there a social cool factor to vaping that is part of the psychological piece here? Well, there, I'll speak there from, is. Okay. go ahead, Will. Well, I was just going to speak from, you know, just observation. I do think there is. Um, somewhat of a social factor into it, um, but we're not. I don't think we're seeing as much peer pressure with this generation of kids as we may have seen in the past, even in my when I was in school. Um, so I don't. I don't know if it's necessarily as social as we think it is. But I'll let Tina talk about that a little bit more. And well, one of the things that's happening too is um, because there's been so much work on smoking prevention over the years, there isn't the stigma of vapes that there is with smoking. So kids are more inclined to do it with their friends and openly. 
And, you know, along with the flavor, there is also a smell that's attractive in the same way that I might, you know, have my coffee pot in the morning and think, oh, that smells great. Unfortunately, if you have these devices that smell like bubble gum and mango and what have you, you know, kids are in a group. Um, that's, that's what we've heard from some of the substance use counselors that kids are attracted to. Oh, what? Oh, you have a new flavor. Let, let me try it. It's um, intriguing to them um, and they want to try it out. And like I said earlier, trying it out turns into trying it out a few times and becoming addicted. And, and I guess, Tina, that's the thing. It, it, if they're not really thinking about the nicotine part, they just become chemically dependent in almost an innocent way. Very much so. And, and, you know, as I mentioned, the nicotine levels in these products have really gone through the roof. And, you know, I was talking to a substance use counselor at UVM, and he said, I used to not get too many requests from students for help on tobacco. It was other substances. But now so many kids vape, that's what they're coming to him for help with because they had just tried it with, you know, friends said try it. And then they didn't even realize that they were addicted until they wanted to cut back on what they were paying for these devices. And then they can't. And then they want help because they, you know, if it's eight times what what the nicotine was in Juul, that's a whole lot of nicotine to be ingesting. And, you know, we were talking about what happens with schools. Kids are addicted and, you know, people like to make them seem like bad kids, but it is an addiction. And, you know, when people are addicted to something, you it's very hard to quit cold turkey. So if you imagine a kid in a classroom is addicted to nicotine, they need to have that nicotine. They're dependent on it. And there's there isn't a lot of resources currently to help them. And so what we see is, you know, teachers trying to solve the problem, nurses trying to, principals, you know, we heard from a principal who put his desk outside of the bathroom because of the problem with bathrooms. The kids need help. And one of the biggest things we can do to help is make sure there are no more kids that get addicted. But to the kids that are, we need to provide some more resources to help them as well. And, you know, I think a big side effect of this is the impact on education because we've heard from folks who've testified, like school nurses who said, when kids leave the class, they're so addicted that when they leave class, they leave for 20 minutes and then they don't go back to class. And that's not the only time that happens. It happens multiple times during the day. So kids aren't getting the education they need to get because they are feeding their addiction. So we really, it is a crisis we have to address, and the flavors are what's making kids take up the habit. William, do you have uh, any data that suggests how many kids in a particular school, what percentage are, are perhaps vaping? Um, I mean, I think it varies from school to school from what I hear, but I think across the board, we could say about a, a third. Wow, a third. Smoking and some in some capacity in the schools, yeah. Yeah, and that um, it, uh, Tina was talking about the sharing, which uh, is so it's really it, it does lend itself to greater numbers. William, what about uh, secondhand vaping vapor? Does that have a uh, a negative, like secondhand smoke, same same kind of thing? Um, well, I'll let Tina answer the health aspects of it, but I do think that uh, Tina did touch on it a second ago about how there's that aroma with the flavors and how that does entice kids to want to try it, take it on, um, and take part in it with their friends. So I do think it does have an effect, but in terms of the health, the health consequences of it, I think Tina might have a little bit more information on that. Okay, Tina? Yeah, sure. I don't have lots of details on the second-hand um, aspect of it, other than we did have students who testified at the state house that because the vapor has chemicals in it, kids with asthma feel the impact like when they're on the bus or exposed to it. But I think the flavors in themselves, I think uh, it needs to be um, said that they are not harmless, whether or not there's nicotine attached to them, because flavors were approved by the FDA to eat, right, blueberry flavoring or whatever flavoring in something you might eat. But it wasn't approved to suck into your lungs. And, you know, we've heard of the popcorn lung condition that people got when they worked in popcorn factories from the flavoring that was through the air and got into their lungs. It's the same thing with these um, flavors in the aerosol that everybody, you know, kids or adults, 
breathe into their lungs. They just haven't been approved to do that. And, you know, asthma is the very least of the problems because there's also particulates and metals and carcinogens and some of these flavors um, that are really, really harmful to, to kids. My guests this morning are William Greer, Flavors Hook Kids Vermont, and Tina Zuck with the American Heart Association. Uh, Will, many, many, many years ago when I was, uh, you know, 14, I think I bought a corn cob pipe with uh, paper root money and some cherry tobacco and, uh, took it out for a spin and, uh, it was pretty harsh. Uh, and, and I, I, I can say that I didn't continue smoking in any capacity, which I'm grateful for. But what about the vapes? You know, cigarettes can be harsh, uh, to the lungs. Obviously they are, but is, is this vaping sort of like a smooth, uh, flavorful, uh, thing for the kids that doesn't have sort of the harsher inhaling issue? Yes, I do. I do think that's part of the reason why we're seeing kids uh, turn to these products because it is when they when they inhale it and they take it in, it is it is easier on the lungs than a traditional cigarette. And from what you had also as a fourteen year old. Yeah. Um, yeah. Fortunately for me, it it didn't. I wasn't too attracted by it, and and didn't go to the cigarettes. Uh, are we still seeing, uh, Tina, are we still seeing a lot of cigarettes as well in, in our youth, uh, in, in the schools and on the streets? Yeah, one of the things, so related to both of your questions, Brad, about that the, the flavors make it easier, smoother. One of the things, unfortunately, that does is in 2009, every single flavored cigarette was eliminated by the federal government for sale except for menthol. And that's one of the items that would be included in this legislation. It eliminates the sale of menthol tobacco products, meaning cigarettes and other tobacco products, but also flavored e-cigarettes. And menthol does provide that smooth smoke that you were talking about, unfortunately. And one of the biggest groups that uses menthol cigarettes is youth. Fifty-four percent of youth start by using menthol and the reason why is so if you ever take a cough drop right the whole reason you take a cough drop is to numb your throat so it feels better and your cough doesn't hurt it's the same with menthol cigarettes they provide that kind of smooth feel and eliminate the harsh harsh cough so you know it's it's horrible but it it becomes a cigarette of choice for use and like you said earlier in the broadcast Brad that you know kids sometimes move from vaping uh, flavored vape devices to cigarettes. You know, we heard some college kids who testified who said, we just need the nicotine in whatever form now they're addicted. And so cigarettes are a problem too. To a lesser extent to the younger kids, the youth smoking rate, I think currently in Vermont is around 7%, but the vaping rates are much higher, but they become, to, they start to grow, <clears throat> excuse me, as kids become older and, and leave the traditional school setting and move on to college in their late teen, early twenties. So Tina, this may be uh conjecture, but are the tobacco industries um concentrating on this vaping and flavoring because they're losing markets in the in more in the adult world or the American uh cancer society making headways uh, that there are an American Heart Association. Are you making headways and they need, they need more market? I think you hit the nail right on the head. I think a lot of good work was done on prevention on, on smoking, traditional smoking, right? And so any business always wants to stay alive and look for new products and how can we have continued success. And unfortunately, with the tobacco industry, they're really good at it. And so they come up with new products all the time. And unfortunately, with products like Juul that happened several years ago, the target market became kids and um, all a whole bunch of other um, kind of vape product producers got into that market. And because kids are kids, that's a lifelong customer you can have. So it made sense for the industry to target them for their for their business model. But it's a crummy business model, if you ask us, really relying on addicted kids to make money and then also, you know, in the state of Vermont to rely on the revenue from the taxes of, of, you know, tobacco products that we know kids are using just doesn't feel good, right? We 
I mentioned the cost to healthcare before, but the bottom line is when we know the numbers are so high of use by our kids, it really is time to act. And uh, Tina, can can adults who legally can vape, can they vape in restaurants in Vermont? No. So you can't smoke. We have really strong clean indoor air laws. So you can't smoke or vape in public places, including including restaurants. Um, you know, and part of that had to do with the safety of, of workers who had to work there and didn't have a choice having to breathe in the secondhand smoke. So you, you can't. You can outside, um, but not within, you know, not within a workplace or pub- public spaces like restaurants. Okay. Uh, so, Tina, S-18 is a, a in uh, Senator Lyons' committee, Senator Chittenden, Clarkson, Gullick, uh, Hashem, Ram, Hinsdale, and Renner are all behind it, some some uh, powerhouse names there. Can you tell it, us? It, yeah, it actually is not in the Senate. They are all, the names you mentioned are all supporters, and it's fantastic. It actually passed through the Senate already. Okay. Senator Lyons is the lead sponsor, and it passed the Senate unanimously last March, I believe. So it went over to the House, and it went to the House Human Services Committee, and they made some changes to it. But it passed unanimously out of the Human Services Committee by a 10-0 vote. Um, so it still includes flavored vape products and includes menthol cigarettes in terms of being eliminated for sale. But it's a staggered, as of now, it's a staggered implementation with flavored vapes being eliminated for sale first and then menthol, I think, six months later. And then that bill moved over to the Human Services, I'm sorry, the House Ways and Means Committee, where it is now. And they've taken some testimony um, and it has to move out of there first, and then it would go on to the House for a vote. Okay. Uh, and tell us what's in the bill that you hope to have an achievement. Tina? Well, I think yeah. I think the big thing is that it would prevent men- the menthol tobacco products, like we mentioned, menthol cigarettes from being sold in the state, and it would prevent flavored vape devices from being sold in the state. And we think that's absolutely fantastic because – it would then make them not attractive to kids anymore, and we could start putting a curb in this, you know, nicotine addiction that we're seeing across um, schools in Vermont. And, you know, it still leave available tobacco-flavored products. So, you know, for folks who, who, who feel like they're adults who want to have e-cigarettes or vape products, um, it's not a ban because there still would be cigarettes available. They just wouldn't be menthol-flavored cigarettes like, like Cool and Salem. Um, and there wouldn't be flavored vapes available that, you know, kids kids are attracted to. And there's some pushback from the the retail world uh, just in commerce in general. Tina, is that right? Yeah, there is because, you know, there, there would definitely be um, some loss of revenue. And, you know, like I said earlier, we just – it doesn't feel good to make money off of kids that are addicted. I think our joint fiscal office has a fiscal note that's around seven million. There, there's a range. I think it's between seven and thirteen million dollars that we would lose in state tax revenue. But I think what's really important is when we can prevent people from smoking and vaping, we see healthcare savings, and some of them are almost immediate, especially in the realm that I'm I care about. Right, heart attacks are, are some of the savings you can see pretty quickly. And Commissioner, Health Commissioner Levine testified last week that we know in Massachusetts is one of the only um, states that's passed a law like this so far. And when they passed their law, they saw a 1% decrease in adult smoking, which might not sound like a lot to you. But when Commissioner Levine testified last week, he said just a, <clears throat> excuse me, just a 1% decrease in Medicaid smoking in Vermont translates to $8.3 million, right? So we get a reduction the same as Massachusetts, we've already saved what we thought we would lose in revenue. So it's, you know, break even at the least, but it's probably even going to be more. He said a 2% reduction would bring double the savings, so a $16.6 million savings. And that's real money that's saved from having to treat the chronic diseases we mentioned earlier that are caused by tobacco. So, Tina, Ways and Means is is really looking more at the there being the bean counters on this yes. and wondering yes. if they're going to lose a whole bunch of money. Do they factor in your $404 million uh, uh, 
amount? Well, I don't know if they have yet. We've made the case for them to factor that in, and, and Commissioner Levine did as well. Um, so I think that is something that they are weighing. And, you know, I think with any financial issue, they're trying to figure out how do we plug the hole. But we, we already know we can plug the hole in savings um, from, from health care costs we would otherwise have used to treat cancer and heart disease and strokes and asthma and COPD. Um, you know, I think that really is something lawmakers need to look at. It's it's not a vacuum. We can't just say, oh, gosh, we're going to lose some revenues, right? We have to say, oh, gosh, what are we spending? And, you know, one of the things Commissioner Levine said last week is the state is spending $1 billion, with a B, treating chronic diseases every year in Vermont. Now, those aren't all tobacco-related, but a lot of them are. Almost 50% of them are tobacco-related. And so you have to do something if you want to curb state spending and, you know, have a fiscally responsible budget. Then you need to do the things that stop causing these costs that we have to pay for. Will, I want to go back to you, and thank you both for staying on with me. I hope I'm not keeping you from other appointments. Uh, It's really a great topic, and... I think our listeners are curious about a few other things. I am as well. Um, William, will vaping still exist in Vermont if the flavors get taken out? Is there is there a basic, you know, vaping that's flavorless that people will still be doing? I do think that there will be. It'll be still a little bit there, um, but I do think that this bill is going to do a really good job with taking away. Um, the possibility and the exposure of vapes overall. So I think we're going to see a very significant decrease in the amount of kids that are vaping and starting to vape. So the goal is we're trying to eradicate vaping in Vermont. Is that correct? And and also stop kids from starting to begin with. So, you know, because it, it is about an addiction cycle and we don't want to keep feeding um, the perpetuation of kids getting onto these products. And so, Tina, what happens when, you know, if the bill passes and what are some of the things in the bill that would impact? Does a kid vaping in, in the bathroom uh, after the bill pass or do they get fined or arrested or the parents? Where, what happens? One of the things that's come up in the – so it's not done yet, so it remains to be seen – how it'll end up, but one of the things the Human Services Committee was concerned about when they took up testimony on this is that they heard that, you know, what I mentioned earlier, that the kids are addicted, and so it's hard to it's hard to want to punish them further because any addiction already is a punishment, right? It takes away your freedom and it takes away your enjoyment. And so what we've seen some schools do that we aren't in favor of is punishing them further and and like taking away their ability to play sports, suspending them from school. So if you think about it, those things are what are actually bringing kids enjoyment and keeping them from vaping. So if they want them to not vape, that's not the way to go about it because now the kids at home with plenty of times on their hand to, to vape. And so we would like more, you know, the restorative approach of how can we help this kid quit? They got addicted to nicotine. It's a real substance. It's a real health problem. And how can we help? And so one of the things the Human Services Committee tried to do in this bill is to require in the circumstance that you just mentioned, Brad, that at school, if a a student is found vaping and their vape products are taken from them, that there's a process that they have to go through that would get them on the road to being able to quit, right, to get some help to quit. And that would um, include requiring them to take some kind of cessation counseling or class and have a attestation or you know some kind of proof that they didn't do did indeed do that and so kind of as a companion effort to to this bill what we're trying to work on is to get some more funding from the state of Vermont for our you know our really terrific tobacco control program to provide some funding for cessation and education resources because you know part of the problem with this is parents aren't some parents aren't really familiar with the harms that these devices can cause. And then kids who become addictive might be afraid to come forward to talk to their parents. And then one of the best ways to help them quit is to talk to their pediatrician because the nicotine replacement therapy that's available for adults to quit was really meant for adults, not for kids. 
so it is a struggle to help kids quit. And the best way to do that is kind of repeated counseling with their doctor, their doctor writing the prescription for this therapy, the nicotine replacement therapy. And parents have to be part of that process. So having some resources available for kids when they are caught, so to speak, um, is really super important to, you know, give them the support they need to to be able to quit. And uh, William, in the schools, are you seeing adults vaping with the flavored vapes as well? Uh, you know, like, you know, people who, teachers who might be um, cigarette smokers as well, but trying to trying to do it a different way? No, not nothing from what I've seen, and I don't think that is the case. It's not allowed in schools. Uh, that's that's prohibited under state and federal law, I believe. Um, so that's that's definitely not a source of anything. Okay, Tina, we're a rural state, uh, surrounded by states. We always have this issue of things crossing the border, so to speak, or heading over to New Hampshire uh, or wherever for for product is. Is this a more a tri-state effort, or is the uh, American Heart Association really all hands on deck for all states, so that we don't have that problem? <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, that that is part of the answer. We are there's an effort, a companion effort in Mass and Maine right now. Massachusetts has already passed this. Um, California is the other state that passed this as well. But you know, I think what's important is um, some of the opponents have kind of brought the fear factor. Oh, well, in Massachusetts, everybody just ran over to New Hampshire and they bottled their flavor vapes when they banned it. And the the revenue picture really doesn't show that to be the case. So what happened is shortly after Massachusetts enacted their law, there was a brief bump in sales and flavored um, vapes and tobacco in New Hampshire. But since then, it has leveled out. And we've seen that before, right, when we've had tobacco taxes in one state and there hasn't been in New Hampshire, where for just a small period of time, a month or two, people would cross the border to get whatever their the cigarettes or tobacco products. And then it levels out because it's a convenient factor. Um, it becomes too difficult over time to, to sustain that. And so um, they really did not lose the sales to other states, uh, despite having, you know, obviously New Hampshire borders us as well. Very interesting. Uh, Tina, is there anything else in, in uh, the bill that you want us to know about that you feel is important uh, moving forward? Well, I think overall it's a really good bill. And you mentioned that it was a 20-something um, page bill, and I think that freaks everybody out when the bill is long. A lot of it really is just correcting language to include, um, along with tobacco, to define what e-liquids are, so technical stuff that made it longer. Um, but I think, you know, the, the elimination of the sales of flavored vapes and menthol are really important. I think one thing that we had hoped would happen and perhaps could at some point is, as I mentioned earlier, um, with use in tobacco products in the tobacco industry, whatever's left on the table becomes a game of whack-a-mole. And one of the things that was exempted was other flavored tobacco, like chew and little cigars, and, you know, that's that's not great because uh, I think it's absolutely wonderful and we'll support the elimination of menthol and flavored vapes. But um, that leaves some products available that kids will be interested for sure. Um, and we need to we need to tackle those as well. No, no tobacco is good for you. Tobacco is the single most preventable cause of death and disease, not just here in our state, but everywhere. Right. So any any of it. Is not a good thing. Nobody ever got healthy from using tobacco. Right, and uh, Tina, the the chew tobacco is sort of this liquid or, or going into the people's cheeks. Um, high rate of cancer from that too is. is that yeah, right? yeah. So you know, unfortunately, there's many different kinds of chew tobacco. So you and I are probably thinking of the old school containers that's chew tobacco, and that's certainly still available, but there's a new product called Zin. And, you know, if you're a cool, hip kid, you call them pillows because they look like little pillows that you put in your mouth and they're flavored in their nicotine. But again, they're not harm-free. There's nicotine in these. And, you know, just to talk about nicotine real briefly, it isn't, it isn't safe. Um, whether or not there's actual tobacco leaves associated with it, nicotine in itself is harmful, and especially for kids, because what it impacts the most in kids is their developing brain. It really has a significant impact on decision-making, 
And, um, you know, we know nicotine long-term from smokers also impacts, um, you have a higher rate of stroke. You have a higher rate of dementia. We just had a study at our stroke conference recently that shows a much higher incidence of Alzheimer's from nicotine. So it's, it's not a great thing to have. And certainly when kids are exposed to it so young, it's still hard to know some of the impacts that are going to happen from these vaping products years from now. And yeah, it's, it is amazing. Um, Will, one, one more question on the kids when, when you're in the schools, uh, is there peer pressure sort of against it too? Or, or other, are some kids going, Ooh, this is gross or, or what? Yeah, I, I've, I've seen the, again, kind of going back to what I said earlier that this generation, I think there is a growing amount of that kind of reaction to it. Um, especially now, I mean, it's been a decade since these products have been really ramping up on the market. Um, but they don't want it. So there is that aspect of it that they're now realizing, you know, so 2015 was when it started coming on the market. So nine years later, now kids are starting to associate it more with smoking. Um, so that's where we're starting to see that pushback now and not necessarily the peer pressure aspect. But that that is still, I mean, it's still there, absolutely, but not, not as severe as we would see with other issues in the past. Well, I want to thank you both for uh, joining us this morning. It's an important issue, uh, those of us who have children and those of us who don't. Uh, we want to we want to keep everybody healthy. The bill is S18. It's in the House. Uh, we've been talking with uh, Will Greer and Tina Zuck about it. If you uh, feel, uh, you know, that this is an important topic, uh, let your legislators know uh, your opinion about this. And uh, we'll hope to have you both back to hear the results as this moves forward. And I want to thank you for being on the show. Thank you very much for having us. Yep. Thank you so much, Brad. Um, great talking with you. Uh, this is Brad Furlan, Vermont Viewpoint, WDEV in Waterbury, Vermont. We will be back with Pickleball right after this. Good morning and welcome back. This is Brad Furlan, your host on Vermont Viewpoint here at WDEV in Waterbury, Vermont. We are getting away from politics for a moment and over to recreation. Uh, my guest this morning, Richard Schaff, has uh, a new business, a relatively new, I think it's new, uh, Catamount Pickleball. Welcome to the show, Rick. Hi, Brett. Um, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, it's great having you. So tell us about Pickleball. It's it's this phenomenon that's hit the world, I guess. <laughs> Yeah, pretty much. It's um, it's the fastest growing sport in the U.S. And uh, some market research um, shows that there could be anywhere from 15 to as many as 20 million active players in the U.S. Um, the growth in the U.S. is somewhere between 60 and 80 percent per year. Um, and uh, it's, it's just really become... Um, a very popular activity that um, you know gives people the chance to get out and meet new people, um, stay active, and um, you know enjoy a game that's really easy to learn and uh, really really fun to play. And it's not a, a new sport particularly, but what happened? What what was sort of the impetus for this incredible uh, you know popularity in it now? Well, it appears that, um, you know, COVID really accelerated um, the popularity of pickleball. Um, and, you know, it's also, it's a very easy game to learn. Um, if you've never held a paddle before, um, within minutes you can be hitting the ball over the net in a sustained rally and, and having fun, you know, as opposed to some other sports where there's a very long learning period in order to really get to the, the enjoyment part of it. It's also a very social sport. Um, it's usually played in, uh, in, in as doubles or groups of four. And, um, you know, it's very community-oriented. Um, so it, it, it sort of checks a lot of the boxes 
of what people are looking for in a recreational activity. And, um, you know, the structure of the game is such that it's really accessible to, to more people in terms of the game focusing on strategy and fine touch and placement of the ball rather than raw athletic ability or, uh, or power. And I uh, have been a lifelong tennis player and, you know, over the years, four tennis courts or eight tennis courts, they're all being used by tennis players. And in the last uh, probably year, I would say, where I play up in St. Albans, we are just surrounded by pickleball players and, and groups of eight per court They're on each side of the net. Uh, people of all ages and abilities, that's what you're seeing with, with your facility. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the, the recent market research uh, surprisingly says that the average age of pickleball players across the U.S. is about 35. So it's really starting to grow amongst all segments of the adult population and in, in the youth market as well. Um, but, yeah, I mean, what, what you've seen and, and observed up in St. Albans is happening all across the country. And are the, the players, do they necessarily have a background in something else, racquetball, tennis, or, or whatever? Or are you just seeing people taking this up um, as an absolute new sport and new interest? Sometimes they do have experience with, uh, you know, another racket sport or another paddle sport. Um, but not always. Um, there are very good players who um, just picked it up, um, you know, without any other sort of racket or paddle experience and have become very good. And I think that speaks to how easy the game is to learn and to become how easy, easy it is to achieve a level of proficiency where you can get to the enjoyment of it and the fun and the social aspect of it um, very quickly. So, you know, again, the, the game is very accessible to more people because of the structure and the format. So I'm so intrigued by this The as a tennis player. And when you watch, you know, pro tennis, of course, the quiet pleas. And when we play even, you know, our, our own competitive tennis, there's not a whole lot of chatter. It, in fact, it's it's really an infringement and, and not not looked upon well. Are, am I, if I'm playing pickleball and the person next to me we're hitting, am I saying, hey, Charlie, what are you having for lunch later? Or is it that kind of thing, that social? Um, it, it almost is. Yeah, <laughs> it's, um, you don't have the uh, sort of quiet um, uh, aspect of it that, that you just mentioned. Um, and the sound of the paddle on the ball, um, you know, has a, has a very distinct um, quality to it, but again, it's a very social sport, and there's a lot of talking and and uh, and chatter. Um, so yeah, there there are distinct differences with with other racket sports. And you mentioned really picking it up quickly. What what? Tell us more about that. If somebody wants to come to your facility and and learn, can a beginner start almost immediately playing? Sure. Um, we will be offering, we already are offering uh, learn to play clinics um, where uh, if you've only played a couple of times or never held a pickleball paddle in your hand before, um, in an hour-long session, you can learn um, the rules, the structure, and, you know, uh, learn and practice some basic uh, rallying uh, techniques. Um, and essentially just it, it, you learn everything that you need to know to then, you know, play with others and continue to to grow and progress in the sport, or move on to other clinics um, such as pickleball 101 or 102, where you can, you know, continue to learn more of the strategy and um, how to work together with your partner, um, as the game is is usually mostly played um, as doubles in groups of four. And, um, yeah, so, you know, whatever a person's uh, desire um, to, to become better at the sport, we, we, we offer everything. 
And uh, tell us where Catamount Pickleball is and how people can find you. We're located in South Burlington in the uh, Tech Park, Technology Park Complex. Um, so that's uh, off of Kimball Avenue on Community Drive. And we're at, you enter in the west entrance of the building, so you, you park on the west side of the building. And so we're very conveniently located in Chittenden County. And how many courts are available at Catamount? So we have a 15,000-square-foot climate-controlled facility, um, so air conditioning in the summer, heating in the winter. So the, the, the weather is always perfect for pickleball inside our facility. <laughs> um, we have uh, premium LED lighting, which is great for eyes of a certain age like mine. Um, we have seven courts plus a, a small practice warm-up uh, area or what's known in, in, the, in the game as, as a kitchen, a little place to warm up. And um, we have um, a premium playing surface uh, that in pickleball we describe it as a lightly cushioned or semi-cushioned play surface, so it's a little bit easier on the joints, again, like me of a certain age. Um, but we wanted to design it such that um, there isn't so much cushioning that it changes uh, the bounce of the ball. And so far the feedback has been really great. We, we think and we hope that we've, We've accomplished the balance of those two design points. It it sounds great because I assume that you know the tennis court um, surfaces vary a lot, so people get different experiences. The I, I do have a question. What what is it's a social game? We have about one minute, so it's real quick answer if you could. Is it is it highly competitive and social? Is it lean more towards social and people are kind of easygoing about the competitive part? It depends on who you are and what, what experience you want. Um, there are groups that, you know, really they want to focus on the recreational aspects and the social aspects, and they're not interested in improving their, their national um, standardized skill rating. And we have others that, um, you know, are very highly rated uh, in the one-to-five um, rating system called DUPR or DUPER. And, um, you know, they, they want to play with others who are in their – about their same skill rating, and um, and they they tend to travel around and, and do tournaments and get serious. So it's really it's whatever experience the, the player wants to uh, engage in. Sounds awesome, Richard Schaff, owner of uh, Catamount Pickleball in South Burlington. You can find them on the website if you're looking for something to do. Uh, this is a great new sport. Uh, thanks for being on the show with me, Rick. Thanks, Brad. Thanks for having me. It was a pleasure. Yeah, it's a great topic. Uh, Brad Furlan, Vermont Viewpoint, WDEV in Waterbury, Vermont. Hope you have a great day. We can't do radio without you.